hopefully you have a Bible. If you don't, um, you can grab one at the table in the back. Um, Kayla's back there. If anybody would like to have one, feel free to make your way back, and she will connect you with one of those. That's our gift to you. Take that. We want you to have it um, and read it because we um, are super grateful uh, for um, God and his kindness to speak to us, to give us his word, and to preserve his word, and that's awesome. And so um, we want you to be able to have a copy of that yourself. Um, hey, cool morning. As you guys open up to uh, 1 Timothy, which is right after, if you're at all unfamiliar, um, it's kind of in the last... I don't know, maybe like sixth of your Bible. Like what a strange way to point you that direction, right? Um, But it's right after 1 and 2 Thessalonians. It's in the New Testament. It's after uh, the letter to the Colossians, Philippians. Just keep scrolling. If you hit Revelation, you went too far, go back to the left. Okay, that's where we'll be this morning. Um, Hey, cool, cool thing though. Um, We've got an old friend with us here this morning. Okay, so I've got to introduce... This friend, right? Um, it's not an actual person, but it's this big green chalkboard um, that's behind us. Um, years ago, when uh, what is now Christ the King started and we were meeting in our living room, um, I showed up from Whitesburg with this on our front porch one day. As Courtney came home, she was super pumped about it. Um, and we would have it, we had it in our, uh, in our living room and we would teach from it like every week. Um, and kind of map like the books that we were going through. And so um, it's summertime and we don't have to break down this space as we typically have to. And so we have, um, we've brought it and it's already served to bring everyone this way. You can't see it on that side. And so no one's over there. And so, man, like double benefits this morning. Everyone's connected together. This side's a little heavier, right? You can tell who's normally over here a little bit. Um, but hopefully you can see it where you are. I get the writing is small. Um, I'm going to say it. it's actually maybe even more for my benefit than yours. That's selfish, but like, hey, um, it's maybe the reality. So it helps me kind of keep track with where we are uh, going as we work our way through these six chapters of Paul's first letter to Timothy, as we will be doing over uh, the summer months, working through 1 Timothy and then going on into uh, 2 Timothy. We're in um, this wonderful portion referred to as the pastoral epistles. Um, This is an epistle um, and it is written to a pastor um, and this Uh, This church that finds itself in a somewhat precarious situation as a result of uh, some of the teaching that's taking place. These are some things that we've addressed over the past few weeks um, that we'll highlight as we begin our time again this morning. But one thing that might be helpful for us to get as we consider, if you've never read through 1 Timothy before, um, if you're unfamiliar with the pastoral epistles, you're not entirely sure what's going on in Ephesus, who Paul is, maybe who Timothy is, you don't, you don't know all of those things, that's totally okay. Um, and I want to catch you up for just a moment. Through this letter, uh, we see... Paul continuing to encourage Timothy towards an embrace of God's holistic vision of the church. The title that we've um, given to this series is the gospel-driven church, right? Um, And so what does it look like for God's people to reside in Christian community, church community, local church community together? um, And what encouragement do we receive from God's word as we live this type of life? We see this, this emphasis on what the church is to believe and how she is to live. Right? What is the church to believe and how is she to live? In week one, we saw an encouragement towards the embrace of sound doctrine and gospel confidence. Right, confident that the gospel is capable of bringing about transformation within the human heart. That there's no need to involve ourselves to become totally wrapped up in speculative issues, but that we ought to remain fixated on the simplistic. 
right? The simplistic gospel, who Christ is and what he has accomplished by way of his death, burial, and resurrection. What we as his people are looking forward to. What is our message to the world? It is that God has redeemed a people. That this plan that is formed before the foundations of the world is enacted and we see it in the person and work of Christ and it continues on into eternity future, right? This is what it, this is what it looks like. This is what we are observing. The encouragement to know the gospel, teach the gospel, and hold to the gospel, right? Know, teach, and hold to. Sound doctrine, gospel doctrine. That was week one. Week two, we looked at chapter two, and we saw this encouragement towards action for the church being articulated. And so what did that look like? Let's catch up from last week. For those of you who might not have been here, what did we observe last week as we go into chapter three this morning? Well, first, there was this encouragement for the church to pray. Right, for, for Timothy and the church in Ephesus to gather together and to pray that God would save sinners and that the decisions of those in power would reflect godly wisdom, producing peace and in turn an ideal setting for living mission and sharing Jesus. That's the first encouragement from Paul to Timothy for Timothy and the church at Ephesus and you and I here today. Pray for peace. Right? Pray for peace because it provides an ideal setting for sharing Jesus with the world. Secondly, trust in the Lord, his work and sovereignty in salvation. Lean into, as we continue on, your unique role within the church, a point that, a point that we will discuss in more detail today. But here's a short synopsis from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Men, don't become distracted. Right? Don't, don't quarrel among yourselves, but reflect the peace and unity of God as you participate in this work. Right? That where there is a lack of peace and a lack of unity among God's people, there is a distortion of the gospel. Because the gospel produces a unified state. Right? A unified people. A compassionate people. A peaceful people. Lean into this, right? Re- reflect this. Train and equip everyone within the body for the work of ministry. This is the call. This is the encouragement from two men from 1 Timothy chapter 2. For women, don't become uh, concerned primarily with externals, but instead remain focused on gospel transformation. And your role, get this, as an important valued, valuable member of the body of Christ. The Gospel Coalition shared an incredible article last night just about the importance of women. We, I don't know if you're at all familiar with what's going on within our denomination, but we had a major Southern Baptist seminary president who had some really um, unflattering truths pertaining to past practices of his come out this past week as it pertains to women. Right, And we say that that is not okay, that that is, that is not right, that women are important, that they are valuable, that they matter to the body of Christ. We need women. right? We need faithful women. And we see this reflected uh, through the encouragement from Paul to Timothy to teach and to train and equip these women that they might engage and participate within the body in their specific roles and functions. Which leads us into chapter 3. Here we go. Big picture, big idea uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 3. God gifts the church. God gifts the church 
with gospel-transformed leaders who care for and serve his bride. This is what we're wrapping our arms around, our our minds around this morning. God gifts the church with gospel-transformed leaders. The gospel-transformed leaders are a gift to God's church. And their role, their duty is to care for and serve his bride. This is emphasized as we look to the qualifications for overseers from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so this is where we're going. This is what we're looking at. And this is what we're going to be seeking to understand over the course of our time together as we observe uh, two very simple observations. First, God's design. God's design as it pertains to overseers and those serving and leading within the church. And finally, humanity's dependency. God's design, our dependency, and then what does it look like to live this gospel out? That's what we're going to be talking about and looking at this morning. And so let's go together to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. We're going to be reading the entirety of this chapter uh, this morning. And as we work through these qualifications for these specific offices, hang with me. Verses 14 through 16 are incredible. Right. Pay specific attention to what Paul has to say to Timothy as he concludes this uh, this chapter. Hey, this is God's word and we are grateful uh, to have it. And so let's read beginning in one Timothy chapter three, verse one. The saying is trustworthy, Paul writes, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be. Here we go. Above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must, though, manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone, for if someone does not know how to maintain his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, that is an incredibly important point. Who does the church belong to? God, right? It is, it is his bride, the bride of Christ. It is his. And so in turn, the way that we engage and care for and uh, live, right, within the church, how we treat the church, one another, uh, reflects ultimately our opinion of Of God, doesn't it? Right? Okay, let's continue on. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit or fall into uh, the condemnation of the devil. Verse 7. Moreover, uh, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so, for this particular office of overseer, which we'll talk more about what that means in just a moment... Paul concludes with this idea that the individual must be thought of well, right? They must be thought of well within and outside of the fellowship. That's super important. Moving on to verse 8. And the second office uh, that Paul highlights, deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Many of these things sound very familiar, don't they? Right? It's almost as though we are seeing a, a re-emphasizing of the qualifications minus a few and add one particular that's different from that of the uh, qualifications for overseers. Not greedy for dishonest gain, verse 9, they must hold uh, the mystery of the faith with a 
clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober minded, faithful in all things. We're going to talk about what that means. And I have a feeling that some of us might, this might be some new information for us. And so let's hold on to that in our minds. Uh, Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Here we go. Verse 14, 15, and 16. Incredible. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which, he says, is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess it's the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and for your spirit that opens our eyes and our hearts to what we um, see here today. We pray that you would, uh, again, uh, give us give us humble spirits and humble postures as we approach your word, that we might be leaning in and worshiping with our attentiveness as we go into this time uh, in your word today. Uh, you are good and you do good and we are grateful for that. And then it's in the name of our King Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. Let's work quickly through these two observations. First, God's design for church leadership. God's design for church leadership. The church at Ephesus is in need of sound leadership. All right, we go all the way back to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we see that there are those who have come into positions of power that have produced, as a result of their, uh, of, of their waywardness, Chaos within this particular Jesus community. And so Paul emphasizes here as we go into chapter 3 the need for sound leadership. Paul lays out for Timothy and those in Ephesus and the church what these offices of leadership and their qualifications are. And we are going to address these this morning in two main sections. Okay, so first, under this God's design portion, is the office of overseer. And then the office of deacon. These are the offices that are mentioned. And then we are going to look at their qualifications. And so here we go. What are the offices mentioned? Well, he begins, Paul, with this office of overseer. He says in verse 1, look with me at verse 1, that this is for individuals who desire the noble or good task of leading Christ's Bride And verse 2, we see that this is a position that is reserved for men of sound character with, and this is super important, with healthy family dynamic, church dynamic, and community relationships. They are morally pure and uniquely gifted. This is what it looks like to to be of this particular office. We see that overseer is actually the same office 
that would be, because of what the New Testament has to say about it, used interchangeably with elder or pastor. And so let's say this, that when we see overseer, that might be a new term to us. What does that mean? What can we, how can we understand that in light of what the New Testament has to say? Well, when we see this office of overseer, we're really talking about the office of, of elder or pastor. Overseer, elder, pastor. A pastor is an elder, an elder is a pastor, and both of these are overseers. How do we understand that? Well, we look at passages like Acts 20, verse 28. And you don't have to turn there, but you can make note of it and check it out later. In which we see elders encouraged towards pastoral duties. And so how do we understand overseer as elder and then elder as pastor? Well, Acts chapter 20 helps us because we see elders encouraged towards these same type of duties that we understand exist for the pastor. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, elders are encouraged to, this is a term that we are probably somewhat familiar with, shepherd the flock that God has entrusted them with. Right, so when we talk about the, uh, the office of overseer, how do we understand that as pastor, elder? How do all of these things come together? Well, the New Testament paints this really healthy picture for us. And as a result, based on what the New Testament has to say, it seems most reasonable to, perse- to, to uh, expect certain characteristics and duties of overseers, elders, and pastors. All one role. And here they are. Okay, so this is new. What do pastors do? What is the role of a pastor? What is the role of an overseer? What is the role of an elder? How do we function within these roles? Well, here it is, based on what we observe in the New Testament. Number one, to lead the church and to protect her from false teachers. Okay, so let's just be clear. When we talk about leadership within the church here and within this local body, this manifestation of the the church right here where we are, I, uh, as the pastor of this church, am the lone elder within this fellowship at this particular time and in this particular season. In addition, we have what is referred to as an office of external elder. That is held by our sending church pastor, Neil Aubrey. And so he and I, he assists in shaping, right, and forming and leading this particular fellowship as one that we trust, that I trust until God raises up men within this church to uh, function within these specific roles. And so as the elder, as the pastor here of this church, I'll tell you one thing that I am ultra concerned about, and that is protecting this fellowship from false teaching and unsound doctrine, right? Does that make sense? Like we ought to expect that of a pastor the same way that a shepherd guards the flock, right? Crook in hand to club any would-be assailants, right? On the flock. That is an expectation of the pastor to club with grace, right? But also with certainly with, with truth, right? That there is this expectation within the church for this particular office. We continue on to teach the word of the Lord. Here's the deal, man. Like my role here is super simple. And the role of overseer within, within this particular, hey man, it's pretty simple in terms of what is expected. Preach God's word. 
Right? Teach the word of the Lord. I am not here each week. Timothy was not in Ephesus each week. Paul wasn't planting churches of guys who would just stand up and share their opinions with the fellowship. But it's about what does God's word say? How do I understand my role? And there's a sense in which you ought to understand your role this way as well. When we think about the way that we engage in a restaurant setting, right? Like you go, you sit down at a restaurant, you uh, order your food, and then what happens? Well, the server brings the food that has been prepared by the chef. Right? The server delivers the food. Here's my role, right? Here's Timothy's role. We guard and protect the flock, and then we teach the word of the Lord. We bring it, we serve it to you. You may not like it at times. But you know what? Like the chef sent it out, and so my job is simply to deliver it to you. We see that this is an expectation for this pastoral role to exhort the church, to admonish the church, and to love and care for the church. This manifests itself in some really specific ways, right? To visit the sick and to pray for their needs and to shepherd her, to lead her. This, these are the expectations for this particular role. Does that make sense. Now, there are a lot of qualifications, but these are the expectations. Lead the church, protect her from false teaching, teach the word of the Lord, exhort her, admonish her, love and care for her, right? Shepherd her. That's the role. That's the expectation for an elder, for an overseer. Now, I want to zone in because there's a lot of, of, of connection between what we see in terms of qualifications for uh, overseers, Elders, pastors, right? And what we see in terms of qualifications for deacons. So I want to I want to zone in because we're doing all of chapter 3 today. And so we are not going to exhaust what we see here in chapter 3. But I want to slide in and I want to focus on one particular aspect that Paul emphasizes. Right? Paul highlights a man's love for and service to his family within these qualifications as non-negotiables. And we actually see that it's this Ephesians 5 type of love, right, that serves to display as best as we can the covenant-keeping love of Christ for the church. This is one emphasis that we see from Paul in terms of these qualifications. He is speaking specifically about elders. And so when we consider the office of overseer, Paul says to Timothy, hey, this is a man that if he has a family, he loves his family. And he loves his family in an Ephesians 5 type of way. We see the way that he relates with children. We see the way that he relates with his wife. These are some things that we are going to, uh, that we're going to look at for, um, for just a moment. But while he's speaking specifically towards the office of elder here, because there is this connection with Ephesians chapter 5, we can say in turn that all men, Right? That all husbands are called to this specific type of behavior. And so it exists for the office of elder. But what does it look like for men to live right, God-glorifying lives in light of the redemption that we have experienced because of who Christ is and what he has done? What does it look like for us to live as husbands and fathers? This is super important. And so, men, here's the deal. Whether you're married, whether you're not married, wherever you kind of are, settle in because we're about to go to school for a moment. Okay, this is what it's going to look like. And ladies, hey, I don't want you guys to sit back and just be like, okay, here we go. Like, this is all for you guys. I'm not going to worry about it, right? But these 
these are things that ought to be expectations for those who you see as potential uh, mates, right? Like helpers, husbands, uh, in and for your life. Paul is speaking with an Ephesians 5 type of language here, and so we're going to apply it to all of us. Settle in, guys. Here we go. We see first that, as Tim Challies puts it, it is a responsibility and not so much a privilege, although it is certainly that, to lead a family in this type of way. He writes, men have the responsibility and opportunity to serve their families through godly servant leadership, ensuring that leaders are leading as they should In the areas that they should. And so here's a great way to understand this. That within a family unit, we've got leaders all over the place, right? Like, in fact, as a church, like one thing that we desire to do is to disciple you into godliness that will result in you living as a leader in a particular place. Right? Does that make sense? Gospel leadership. So the role of headship within the family is that the husband is the leader of the leaders. And so are we leading in the right areas? Are we leading the way that we should be in the areas that we should be? What does it look like for a man to lead his family in a biblical, Christ-exalting, spirit-reliant type of way? Did you get those three things? That's where we start, okay? Uh, that it's, it's, it's biblical, it's Christ-exalting, it's spirit-reliant. That's what it looks like to lead in this type of way, right? If you aspire for this, this good office, amen, praise the Lord. We're excited about that. But that does not negate or disqualify men within this room to function in this particular type of way. Do we get that? Are we all together so far? Ephesians 5 makes the connection for us. This is the question that we should be asking. And interestingly enough, it is not marked that is a man's leadership within his family by fear and dominance, but instead, I would argue, worship of Jesus. That men lead in light of worship of Jesus. And so here we go. Let's, let's go through a few areas that as men, we need to ask some serious questions as we observe God's design specifically in this area for this particular office. Men, here's the challenge. Lead your family in worship. None of these are original to me, but this all came from a really incredible article by a guy named Tim Challies that I just had to share with you. Men, lead your family in worship. Family worship, consistent with what we find in God's word, specifically your family's engagement, participation, and membership in sound gospel-centered fellowship. That's what it looks like to lead our families. Hey, amen, we've got them on the screen. You guys can follow along for all the list takers in the group. Right, Men, lead your family in worship. Well, there are a few specific areas that this, uh, that this can be present. Right, We lead our families in family worship. Men, here we go. Lead your family in family worship. Lead your family in, in family worship. A time reading God's word together, praying together, and singing together, man. That's what that kind of looks like. I know when Courtney and I found out that we were expecting, one of the things that I was most excited about was being able to um, to do things like this. Not to say that you don't do that when you just it's just you and your wife and you have to wait until you have children. But it was just super exciting to consider bringing this little person up and admonishing him in the way of the Lord, right? And so practicing specific uh, things like this, leading family in family worship, reading God's word together, praying together, singing together. Men, is this something you're doing in your family? Is this happening in your family? This is challenging. This is challenging to me. 
So I know it's challenging for you as well. Lead your family in family worship. Number two, men, lead your family in personal worship. Oh, this is so great. Check this out. Lead your family in personal worship. What does that mean? It means that you model personal worship for your family. You lead your wife in and towards this. You emphasize its importance and do practical things to provide time for, speaking of the spouse for just a moment, her to practice it. Right? What is it being in God's word? Right? Like feeding your soul, becoming a self-feeder to where you take God's word and you sit down and you consume it. Men, as we lead our families, desiring this, this good and noble task of functioning within this particular role in the church, it's going to require self-sacrifice. Right, it's going to require sacrifice. I was thinking through some practical things that I could do to serve my wife. As I encourage and lead her in and toward a heart of worship, right? There's a few really simple tasks that I can do at our house that will create time for her to engage in personal worship. I can bathe Judah, right? Give him a bath. I can read him a book. I can take him outside. I can take him to the park. We can go swing or slide or shoot. All of these things he really enjoys doing. I can chase the ball across the road for 45 minutes or so and give my wife ample opportunity to enjoy time with God in his word. And so, men, here we go. Lead in family worship. Lead in personal worship. Model that for your family engaging with God's word. Men, do our wives... (laughs) <laughs> and children see us engaged in God's word, right? Do they see us sitting and reading and feasting on God's word? Is that something that's being modeled? Women, is that something that you are expecting of your husband, of your spouse, leading in this Ephesians 5 love type of way? It doesn't stop with the spouse, but it flows over into our children. Men, lead your children. You are the lead. It is not your wife. It is not the church, but it is you. You are the head, and you are to lead your family. Men, lead your wives. You are responsible for her in a most unique way in which she is not responsible for you. Ensure your wife is in the word. Oh man, this is a lot of work, right? Like ensure that your wife is in the word. Encourage her and pray for her. Serve her. Be gentle with her. Delight in her and do these things confidently. This is often belittled and berated by culture and neglected and rejected by the church. And so where is this on our, on our like daily calendar, right, in terms of leading and engaging in this particular type of way? Men, encourage your bride toward Christian community. Encourage your bride towards Christian community, fellowship with God's people, gathered together around God's word. Right? And enjoying just fellowship with godly women. Participate and encourage corporate confession and faithfulness to mission. Paul says that these types of things are expectations for those leading the church. Expectations. 
Right? Are we expecting this? Now, again, hey, I get it, right? We're in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're talking about the office of overseer, and we see all of these things that are emphasized here that we ought to, as men, aspire towards. But this is one that, given its connection, we have to say, man, this is for us. This is for the church. This is for elders. This is for pastors. And this is for men within the church. Challenging. I think it would be a good thing for us to, as men, continue to pour over and to visit what we see in verses 1 through 7. But we've got another office that we need to discuss as well. We see this office of deacon, or uh, what might best be understood and referred to as table servants, who have given themselves to serving the body. We see the institution of this particular office in a most baseline type of way in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we have observed at that point the coming of the Spirit of God. We have seen Peter proclaim a message that brings about by the Lord's grace and a work of the Spirit, salvation of thousands of people. We see the church in Jerusalem explode overnight. And as a result of the explosion that has taken place and the unique role that those in positions of eldership within the church have, we see that there is, as a result, some neglect that is brought about within the church for its people. If you go back to Acts chapter 6, you can read more about this. Long story short, right, there's this group of Hellenistic Jews that are being neglected as it pertains to, uh, to giving out food, right? And so this information is brought to the church and the church goes, wow, this was not at all our intent. We're kind of trying to stay ahead of the ball here. Things have really exploded in case you hadn't noticed. And so what we need to do is we need to begin setting aside specific individuals to function within these roles in order that the body might be cared for and the work of the elder and overseer might not be neglected. That is to say that the elder overseer pastor has to do certain things and that in order for these things to not be neglected. We need an office that is not lesser than, but it's one that's committed to service in these particular areas so that word ministry is not neglected, right? So that there's a prayer ministry is not neglected. We need hands. We need feet. We need table servers to ensure that widow ministry, in the case of Acts chapter 6, is taking place. And so what are these qualifications? We're going to read them in just a moment, but one thing that I want you to notice is that they are lofty. There's a lot of connection back to what we see in verses 1 through 7. And so oftentimes what I think that we can do is to look at, uh, look at the office of elder overseer and then look at the office of deacon and go, okay, this particular individual isn't quite cutting it in terms of being an elder. And so we'll just like give them the next rung down. That means being a deacon. That's not at all what we see. In fact, we see that it is a lofty position. Differing only in two specific ways from elders. One, there's no teaching specific qualification. However, hang on, let's emphasize this. That doesn't mean that you are disconnected and unable to engage in conversation about who God is, what he has done, and what he says to us in his word. Do you want any evidence of this? Consider the stoning of Stephen. Right? Go to the stoning of Stephen and observe there, who is a deacon, by the way, the sermon that he lays out before he is literally killed. 
Man, it is sound. It is legit. Okay, and so it's not, hey, here's a really solid guy who can move tables around, and so let's plug him into this position. No, I man, it's, it's a striving towards godliness and a commitment to serve in these particular areas. That's the first one. There's no teaching specific qualification, whereas the overseer says you must be able to teach. We don't see that here, but we just said all the things that we do, and so I won't re I won't re-emphasize or iterate it, but you guys see it there. Then we see that this office is open to both men and women. And so let's look at verse 8, and let's seek to understand how we uh, see this role play itself out in Scripture. Beginning in verse 8, look there with me. Deacons likewise, right? And so we're making this transition out of this particular office of overseer into the office of elder. Deacons likewise must be dignified. Well, what does that mean? Now, this is going to help us understand the things that we didn't touch on in terms of qualifications for pastors. But, but what does it mean to be dignified? Well, if we, were to, if we were to say it in another word, it might be this, to be sincere, right? To be dignified is to be sincere. It is to display sincerity, right? There is this, there's a sincere spirit among those who uh, find themselves qualified for these Positions. They are not double-tongued. What does that mean? Well, they're not two-faced, right? Saying one thing to one group of people and another thing to another group of people. But there is, again, sincerity, right? There's not double-tonguedness, but who we are is, is, is who we are, right? Open book. Here I am. It says that they're not addicted to much wine. I love what Tabidi Anawele says about this particular verse. He says that they are not controlled or ruined by the grape. Right? Not controlled and not ruined by the grave. They're not given too much wine. They're not greedy for dishonest gain. It's not all about who I am, what I can get, what I can obtain, and building my own individual kingdom. All this is about a much bigger kingdom. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. We're going to talk about what this means in just a moment. Verse 10. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. There is this uh, experiential expectation, an expectation of faith, right? An expectation of faith in addition to knowing and articulating and teaching from the scriptures. This is the emphasis in verses 8 through 10, the first half of verse 10. Then we go into the second half of verse 10 and we go, all right, here we see them talking about a deacon's Wife. Only that's not the way that we would best understand what we see in the second half of verse 10. Wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And so is he talking about a deacon's wife? How a deacon's wife must function if this particular individual is to hold to this office? I don't think so. The best way that we could understand the Greek to English translation here is not wives likewise, but instead likewise women. Likewise, women must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. There's this transition into this next realm of office. We see throughout the New Testament countless illustrations of faithful women that any New Testament scholar would go to and say, this is clearly, right? Like, if, if I know anything, this is clearly an example of a woman serving in this particular office within the church. A great example would be Phoebe. Right? Phoebe is a great example of one that many would believe, many New Testament scholars would say, this is an, 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 an illustration, this is a, a point in time in which we observe a woman holding this particular office. 
Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. I know we're getting a lot of information right now, and so hang with me. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons, uh, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There is a very real sense in which these qualifications for deacons flow over into expectations for all of God's people. Let's understand how the office functions for just a moment. This is super helpful. It's not as though one achieves a certain level of godliness to where you go, okay, here you go. You have, you have reached the bar and now you qualify for this particular position. Instead, what we see in this particular office are individuals who are selected and set aside as models to the fellowship of what it looks like to live the Christian life. Okay, when we're talking about uh, God's design and we look here at the qualifications for deacons, what we see very clearly is that this is the way God intends his people to live. And as a result, five, six, 20 individuals are set aside and they're placed in these particular positions to serve as beacons to the fellowship that we might know what it looks like for an individual to live the Christian life. It's the expectation for all of God's people, right? It's not as though you go, okay, well, I'm not a deacon. And of course, deacons are encouraged to not be consumed by the grape, but I'm not a deacon. And so, hey, even though I'm a Christian, wine spritzers for days, right? Like that doesn't apply to me. It doesn't obtain, it's not about me. That's for deacons, right? It's not as though you go, okay, well, deacons are supposed to be dignified or sincere, but I'm not a deacon. And so what do I do? Insincerity, rules and reigns, double-tongueness. You never know who in the world you're talking to when it comes to, to engaging with me. Not greedy for dishonest gain? Well, that's all about deacons, and so I'm a Christian, right? But it's all about me. It's all about getting what I can get, and again, building my kingdom. That is not the encouragement that we see from this passage. Instead, it is set these individuals aside to serve the church, to serve God's people, to serve the community, and might they display themselves before the fellowship in a way that the fellowship observes their behavior and goes, man, this is what it looks like. This is what a redeemed life looks like. That's what we're getting at. Okay, this is what a redeemed life looks like. This is what a regenerate life looks like. This is what a gospel transformed life looks like, which is going to catapult us into our next point in just a moment. But do we understand that? Right, that you don't go, okay, now I've been elected to this specific position, and so allow me to adopt these practices in my life. That's not what we're seeing Paul encourage Timothy towards here, but instead that the church in Ephesus right, might model these behaviors and that select individuals might be lifted up and out and up so that the fellowship can see it and go, man, this is what it looks like. This is what my life needs to look like. Do we get that? Are we all on the same page? Okay, now let's transition to the next part. We see, I keep going back and forth. Here we go. God's design, that's the intent, that's God's design for how his people would live. Only we see emphasized here our dependency, humanity's dependency. Right? These are the roles. However, there is a great struggle and it is sin. It's our sin. We don't look like this. 
right? Like this is the call. This is the expectation. These are the qualifications. Only we are confronted as we approach these with our massive need. Humanity's hope is not that we can bootstrap our way into these particular qualities. Now, I do think there's an aspect of bootstrap that gets a bad name. Sometimes we do need to try harder. Does that make sense? Now, understand what I'm saying here. This isn't in order to obtain justification. But this is, if sin is a problem in your life, and it is a continual problem in your life, you need to try, right? Like, you need to get out of that. You need to look to Christ for strength and hope and encouragement to get out, right? But there is a very real sense in which we say that given our need to be justified, our natural tendency is not towards all of the things that we see encouraged for a godly life. If you simply say, apart from the work of the Spirit in your life, hang with me here, check this out. Okay, if you simply say without the work of the Spirit in your life that I'm going to begin to live and model these attributes for the world to see, and you are not regenerate, your heart is not new, you are not forgiven, you have not gazed upon Christ in faith for salvation, man, you will fail epically. Because this is not our tendency. This is not our natural desire. We do not naturally function this way. Only we see the great hope is that Jesus does. He models and fulfills all of these qualifications. He models and he fulfills all of these qualifications. In each of these, we see Jesus as the example of what living this type of life looks like. Allow me to rattle these off for you. Jesus perfectly and fully submits himself to the Father's will. Jesus embodies humility. Jesus, despite possessing power over sin, death, and the physical elements of this world, displays perfect self-control in the face of unjust practices of men and their evil intentions for that which is perfect and desirable. Does that make sense? Everything that we see, the office of overseer and deacon encouraged toward Christ fulfills. Jesus brings clarity to the law and man's misinterpretation and perversion. Jesus is gentle, communicating perfect truth with perfect peace. Jesus displays incomprehensible generosity. Incomprehensible generosity, giving fully of himself so that by grace, through faith, we might fully receive his reward. Perfect righteousness, a life that reflects these qualities and fellowship with God and one another. This is the three areas that I thought about here. Cross, right? Conformity and community. Cross, conformity, community. This is the way that this works. We gaze upon the cross, right? We are conformed into the image of the Son, and we are brought into, by way of what He has done, community with God and with one another. We begin to live these types of lives. Jesus leads His bride. Wow. We think in the beginning about the call for men to lead in these specific, tangible, real ways. Jesus fulfills it. He models it. He leads his bride, the church, as her head. Before what? This is good. 
before equipping her and, and her members for ministry through the Spirit to love and submit within the family in a way that produces clarity in terms of who he is and what and who we worship. Does that make sense? Man, Jesus fulfills this. So let's get this. These are the qualifications for men serving in this office, women serving in this office. Jesus fulfills them, and then he sends the Spirit who enables their practice. The Spirit's empowerment for the Christian life and service to and leadership of his church. Let me say that one more time. We see the Spirit's empowerment for the Christian life and service to and leadership of His church. In each one of these, in each one of these cases, these qualifications serve to display a life marked, a life clothed by the gospel. These, these are marks of a regenerate life. Yesterday, uh, my wife and I, Courtney, and our little boy Judah were driving to Birmingham uh, to help my sister-in-law and brother-in-law get their room together for their new baby who is on the way and will be here in like no time at all. Um, and so we went yesterday to Birmingham to help get uh, her, uh, get, help get the, the, the room ready for the baby. And while we were on our way, we stopped in uh, some small town along the way to get gas and coffee because, I mean, you must, right? And so we pull off to get coffee, and man, driving with my family is an altogether new experience now since we have turned Judah around, right? He rides facing forward now, um, which is awesome. Uh, but now he sees everything, and he's much more engaged with like what's going on around. And so we're, we're going down uh, the, the road in some like small community in Alabama, uh, and there's two guys on the side of the road, and they're cooking barbecue, um, and <laughs> Judah looks over at them, and he goes, Jesus, and, and, and Moses, and we were like, wait a second, like, no, that no, not really, but I see what you did there, like, these guys are, I guess, displaying, um, like, generosity and creativity and, like, workmanship. And so I kind of like what you did there. A couple of weeks ago, we were in the record shop, and Judah picked up a record um, that we, we won't talk about everything that was on the cover of this this album. Uh, but there was a guy with a ponytail, um, and Judah thought it was Jesus. He said, Jesus. And we said, no, that's not Jesus either, although this guy probably is really creative, and, well, Jesus is super creative, and so there is an image of God quality that we are observing and that you're connecting and super pumped about that. And what is this all about? Why are we making these connections? Well, because here's what we're saying. When a life is redeemed and an individual is made regenerate and we are clothed, right, in these gospel qualities, it begins to display, again, a likeness of Christ that results in worship and adoration to him, right? Do we get that, right, that when we are clothed in the gospel, it would make sense, right, as the culture engages perhaps with what they know of God's word and then observe the church, that they would go, yeah, these look like Jesus people, right, these look like Jesus, right? This is what that looks like, right? These these qualities, these qualifications are what that that looks like. 
And so what does that look like in our lives, right? Like, what does that look like? Like, are our lives modeled or, or, or displayed or cloaked in these gospel qualities? That's a super fair question to ask, isn't it? That's a super important question to ask. Like, is my life marked with these with these qualities. Paul's encouragement to Timothy is to find men whose lives are clothed in these qualities. And women whose lives are clothed in these qualities. Who can serve the church and serve as a model for the church as they gaze to Christ as our model. Does that make sense? Let's close out here in this last section as we look at this living out of the gospel. Look with me beginning at verse 15, verse 14, I'm sorry. The mystery of godliness. We close with this key portion of Paul's first letter. He writes this, I hope to come to you soon, but hey, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you can know how one ought to behave in the household of God. How does one behave? How does one live? Those are all the things that we just talked about, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Verse 16, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. What's he talking about here? We're going to touch on it. He, being Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. And we talked about that earlier, the incarnation, right? We, we affirm that in the Apostles' Creed. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. One thing that we can say as we look at verse 16 is that Christ is the source of the godly life. Christ is the source of the godly life. To life... To, to life... We see the gospel is an ever-present work of transformation from beginning to end. Our lives are being transformed by the gospel from beginning to end. These qualities are present in pastors, deacons, men and women. They are Christ-elevating and they bring about Christ-worshipping. We see that the the gospel enables it. We see that the gospel sustains it, and we see that it all glorifies Christ. And so, how do we respond as we consider, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. It's all about Christ. He enables it. He brings it about. He introduces it. He sustains it. He finishes it. From beginning to end, it's all about Him. What do we do in response? Well, let's break it up into two categories. Men, here we go. Look to Christ and cling to the gospel. Look to Christ and cling to the gospel. Familiarize yourself with attributes of a gospel-cloaked life and desire their presence as they only serve to glorify our King. So men, look to Christ and cling to the gospel. Women, here we go. You guys ready? Here it is. Look to Christ and cling to the gospel. Right? Like Look to Christ and, and cling to the gospel. He is the source of godliness. He produces it in us. And it all brings about worship to him. Our lives are not about ourselves, right? They're not about our, us, who we are and what we have going on, but they're all about him. They're all about him. And these are aspects and attributes and qualifications of a gospel-cloaked 
life. And so let us desire gospel-clothed lives. If you're here this morning and you go, hey, you know what? I have not been living a gospel-clothed life. Guess what? There is great grace and commitment from our God to produce that in your life. If you're here and you go, you know what? I've been striving and desiring after this, but I am exhausted. Guess what? There is strength found in Christ for the gospel-cloaked life. And so let us, as a gospel-driven church, live a gospel-cloaked life. Does that make sense? We together? Amen. Amen.